Welcome to Ms. Lyrics Poetry Outlaws, a show about all things poetry. I'm your host, Catherine Owen. Good morning, Poetry Outlaws. It's uh, Monday and it's January 2nd, so it's the beginning of the so-called New Year, 2023. And it's a gorgeous sunny day, blue sky, the snow is glowing on the trees, and uh, my cat is climbing up on the table, and he's been very verbal over the last few minutes, so I've been telling him to shut up. Uh, he's now clawing up my beautiful custom balloon chair, so a delightful fellow. Yes, well, I would like to start this new year by saying, first of all, some of my plans for this particular season. I'm sure I mentioned it a few episodes ago in my uh, final week of December um, previews of of what I'm doing this season, but as well as my typical uh, gurs and um, homages. I'm planning on doing an homage this week for Diana Brebner. Um, also we're going to, and we already started with Susan Glickman, a series of entrances. So as those come into my email inbox, I will be putting those up and, uh, see how that goes. See how many people who said they'd send them in do send them in. Cause I'm excited to hear what they have to say about poetics and their poems. Uh, these Canadian poets of whom I've asked about 50 of those whom I admire and would like to hear more from. So there's that. And uh, there's also, uh, I like reading from anthologies. I like picking certain anthologies. So I I did, I started off this whole podcast by uh, reading from my first anthology that I encountered in childhood, Illustrated Poems for Children. And I've read from the Sesla Milosh anthology, A Book of Luminous Things. I've read from a lot of individual collections as well. But I think that this season, I'm going to read poems from the Eco Poetry Anthology, which twins both my interest in anthologies and also my um, compulsion to recite longer poems that you rarely seem to hear. And often they don't even get published other than in, say, a long poem contest, um, magazines and so forth. So I'm going to do that. And also, I'm going to start another series as well as the entrances called Openers. And in that case, my vision is, we'll see how this works out, but my vision is that I'm just going to, I have a vast collection of poetics, um, books about poetry, books by poets about living in the world and creating and so forth. And I'm going to pick a book at random and open it up and read a passage from it and discuss whatever comes into my mind relating to that um, piece of work from that particular writer and possibly also connect a poem to that. So we'll see how that goes. And hopefully that will also lead you to uh, getting these books if you're so interested in that particular topic or focus or intent. Uh, They're a passion of mine. I think that we need to have more books by more poets about what it's like being a poet in the world and what their practice is and what they're obsessed by. You know, we can use all the uh, spurs, you know, we can get inspiration, whatever you want to call it, kick in the pants. So I thought I'd start the new year as well as telling you uh, what I'm planning on doing uh, by letting you know that uh, 
This year marks 25 years of publishing trade books for me. I, I published chapbooks prior. And, hmm, I guess that's yet another number. Numbers don't really matter to me, but, you know, things like 25 years of publishing trade books seems to have a certain kind of weight to it, longevity, presence, and so forth. So I thought I would just kind of ramble a bit about what has changed for me and not changed for me since my first trade book. I mean, I've been writing since I was three or four years old. It's always been a part of my life, uh, whether it was poetry, uh, more short fiction or pseudo novels um, in my uh, elementary school years, and then proceeding to horrendous heavy metal tunes uh, like my infamous Hellhole, and then back to being, I remember feeling that I was going to be entirely committed to poetry as my core at about 18 or 19 years of age. And I ended up publishing a bunch of chapbooks from 21 on, and also kind of, uh, I had my own press called Wet Sickle Press for a number of years and, and put out some books through that. Uh, but my first my first book came out in, in 1998 uh, through Exile Editions called Somatic, The Life and Work of Egon Sheila. And what was the world like then in the, in the 90s, in the mid to late 90s? And, and what is it like now in 2022, 2023? What's changed? What's improved? What's worsened? What's my perspective on this? So this is my little New Year's gift or curse, as the case may be. So first of all, let's let's go to the side that I think has been a more complexified or diminished in a lot of ways. So venues, of course, we see this is a, a great issue amongst all the performing arts. Uh, there has been uh, fewer venues to perform poetry in over the years, just as there has with music. Uh, some venues in the 90s and 2000s, I started to tour in 2002, uh, and I've done 12 cross-Canada tours since then. So I've experienced a wide range of different venues. And the main thing I've noticed is that it's harder and harder to keep a venue going, either because it's not getting funding from grants, or there's just such an immense amount of, you know, immense number of poets emerging from MFA programs, mostly, that the organizer can get very overwhelmed. I saw a letter written by the organizer of the Art Bar recently, and that's a series that has been long running, what, 30 years, and has just closed because of funding issues and also these personal issues that people seem to have of, of feeling that uh, they should be treated like stars, that they deserve to read way too long, that they um, need top billing or, you know, just a sense of entitlement to the point of um, viciousness at times. And also the um, boxing that's going on in terms of, you know, gender and so forth that makes it very difficult for uh, somebody not to insult somebody these days. So I think there, there's this general feeling of being overwhelmed. And I personally found, I mean, I've also run series all this time. And my favorite series are ones that are not held in public places, but are held in my home. So whether it's, you know, the, the uh, 44th Avenue Troubadour in the mid uh, 2000s, 
then I had the bed lecture series when I lived in New Westminster, and then now I have the uh, the Trober Eats event, um, which to me is just it's they're in they're in my living room, or they're in my bedroom as the case may be, and they uh, have a an invite only audience. They have an invite only uh, set of performers. I try to mix the genres and the mediums for variety and diversity. I offer a small amount of pay to the musicians and I offer drinks and snacks to everybody else and, you know, pass the hat and sell your books or your art or whatever the case. Here, this is my, this is my, my idiom for the morning, whatever the case may be. Okay. This happens when you're doing a a podcast episode, you try very hard to not have ums and ahs and repeated phrases but it seems that it's it's an incredible challenge at times. But there you go. That's human reality. So onwards with that. So, you know, I'll just give you an example, you know, younger poets of what it was like in, you know, the early 2000s, say, for the art bar, going to do a reading there. There was a sense that you were reading at a prestigious series, that there was a certain selection process, that they mostly accepted those who had a certain... A number of publications. Uh, you would generally get a, a good introduction. There would be a poster. There would be, you know, promotional materials. It was far from perfect, but nothing is. Uh, but most importantly, for a touring poet, uh, they had a, a funding system in place where you would get your airfare covered, and then you would get about two hundred and fifty dollars, depending uh, on the system, for reading as the solo or main act. And they had a open mic, but it was not, you know, over the top. And then they even had, I think, donations at the door, which Planet Earth Poetry does as well. Uh, and so you would, and then you would sell some books, you know, wow. So it was a really, it was a big highlight of uh, a tour. And often like the event that the tour would pivot around. And now, alas, I mean, it's it's gone and before that it lost its funding so these things are happening uh which is sad but i'm also hoping that there are a lot of people that are figuring out ways like i'm trying to figure out um to have a variety of different types of events that are maybe more intimate and focused and you know kind of um community based and you know grassroots uh, and that, you know, that's always my hope that things die, but other things spring up. But at any rate, that's the distinction between then and now in terms of my experience. And of course, you know, having had a couple of tours canceled with the pandemic, there's a part of me that says, okay, well, are you going to actually tour again if you get another book out, which I am going to eventually have another book out, which also kind of bugs me that touring when it comes to supposed page poets is so book dependent. But this notion that are you going to be able to find the venues? Are are the network systems in place? Are you going to be able to be sufficiently uh, funded, at least, you know, in part? Uh, the other way I fund my tours on the road is by giving workshops. But I really think that, you know, touring is still important, you know, getting across the country and and creating this whole thread of friends and compatriots it just creates these beautiful art echoes everywhere. So I think that that also helps to counter this notion of the poetry community, which I think is 
becoming more and more prevalent of less of a community that supports each other with attending events and doing reviews and, you know, buying books, God forbid, and reading them. Um, but this sense of, you know, the, the, the poet is, is the one, you know, the isolated, the individualist, the, you know, like what recently happened with the Griffin Prizes, where now a large sum of money is awarded to one poet. And so, you know, and then, you know, the idea that this is actually contributing to the poetry community when obviously it's not, it's, it's contributing to one poet and that's great, but this is not to me at all a healthy way of seeing the art world. Um, there are a few prizes, there are a few awards that mean something, but there are a hell of a lot of them that mean absolutely nothing, but they're somehow utilized as kinds of, you know, horses to ride in on uh, and, and say, look at me, look at me. And that's become more and more prevalent. I mean, I remember, I remember prizes and awards being something in the 90s, uh, but I don't remember it being the most important thing. And bios on the backs of books now are, are almost exclusively what prizes or awards you've won or been nominated for. When I think that the bios should be, you know, about what you've accomplished through your books and your, your events and your reviews and, you know, your community involvements as a poet rather than just the awards and prizes and that being used as a marketing tool. So yes, as we see with everything in the world now, marketing has become ever more important. So if you don't have these uh, special gold stars and you don't fit in these, you know, particular checked boxes, then it's harder for sure for those not coming from the MFA system or those who don't fit, you know, certain um, modalities to get published now and promoted because they're they're just not fitting with you know the game as it stands right now so you know I always wonder with all these books coming out every year and those even who want to you know review them like say Rob McLennan he was just saying the other day that there's just so many out every year that he just can't get to them all and, you know, that's a little bit tragic because do we need that many books of poems out every year? I mean, who's buying them? Who's reading them? Are poets supporting each other through, you know, buying their work? I mean, I can look at my royalty statements and say, absolutely not. Uh, of course, I have my supporters. But, you know, just those of you who don't know, uh, essentially a poet, a writer, anybody who publishes uh, receives 10% of the royalties for the book sold, but you only receive those royalties once you've paid back your advance, which could be hundreds or it could be thousands, depending on the situation. Um, well, it could be millions, but that's not us. Uh, but um, so, you know, you can go for 10 or 20 years and, and not get one cent. So I'm thinking that if we did actually all buy each other's books, then at least we would create this insular kind of economic environment where we were actually getting royalties and we were actually feeling our books were present in the world and read. But I don't see that particularly happening. So uh, let's see, in, in 1998, so this is another interesting contrast. If you were a member of the League of Canadian Poets, which I'm not anymore, because I decided I'm not that compelled by 
en masse organizations for poets. But when, you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, if you wanted to go to the AGM of the League of Canadian Poets, you had pretty much complete funding. And so, you know, there was the chance for a whole bunch of poets to get together and talk poetry and people not to feel like they were going in the hole over it. And now, uh, as far as I know, there's very little to no funding for going to AGMs and just just the amount of funding for all kinds of things, readings, publications and so forth has gone down. And of course it has to because there's so many more poets who are coming out of programs and who want to be part of these organizations. So is that benefiting poetry as a whole? Mm, Not so sure about that. Not so sure about these massive organizations. Uh, I do think that the Writers Union has done a lot of positive things for writers in general, especially in terms of, you know, the public lending rights and you know, we've been in a battle to get fair justice uh, from Can Copy for over a decade now, uh, ever since professors decided that they didn't want to pay for photocopies. So hopefully the Writers Union will persist and win that fight for us because we, as writers, can count on so little financially every year. And while we have no delusions, well, most of us, that we're going to make an entire living as writers or poets, it sure is nice if a, if a chunk comes every year that we can count on. Like, for instance, the public lending rights check, which comes in February. And that couple of grand makes a massive difference to me every year. So that has improved because the more books you publish, the more PLR you're going to get up to a certain point. Okay, so publishing... I've touched a little bit on how many more books are produced now than were then. Um, and the, the the standardization that occurs. So, you know, you, you feel very fortunate when you put a book out and you are because that production of the book is enabled by block grants and funding. And that's terrific because you have hope that your book is going to get out into the world. But it's so much bigger than that. So a a lot of the times these block grants, of course, this is stuff I did not know at all when my first book came out. Literally, um, Barry Callahan, the then publisher of XL Editions, signed a pseudo contract for me on a napkin. Um, I'd gotten connected with him through Joe Joe Rosenblatt. I knew nothing about XL Editions. And I just thought, okay, this is wild. I've got this napkin contract. Here we go. Fame and fortune. No, I never thought that. But uh, then I gradually learned, okay, so these presses are, they're supported by block grants, but the block grants often seem to extend only as far as the publication of the book. And there might be some funding offered for tours, but a lot of times presses don't, you know, they just don't get their writers to go on tours, or maybe they use the funds themselves, some of these presses, or maybe they don't get that funding as part of their block grants. There's a variety of options or non-options. But, you know, one way or the other, it's just becoming more, I've seen it become more about the producing of beautiful books, which is awesome. But then what's happening to these books in the world? Who's reviewing them? Who's reading them? Who's buying them? Who's touring them? How do they matter? You know, how do books connect from one season to the next in different authors? That's one of the things I was trying to do in my um, my Imagine Reading 
series on in the last season of Miss Lyrics, and I, I might persist in that again this season. But, you know, connecting books and poems and poets across time and seeing what resonances result, I think that that's really interesting and compelling. And, and you know, that's what we want, not just all these, again, isolated instances of production and them going to chapters for three months and then, you know, 98% of them being returned and and pulped or shelved in the warehouses. So, so that's publishing in books. Uh, and, you know, the other thing that I've noticed has become much more prevalent is that the blurbs on the backs of books, I know I've mentioned this before, but they get very excessive and hyperbolic. And, and to me, that's just disrespectful to the art of poetry because there's no need for that. Like, if you're going to have blurbs at all, um, first of all, most of the time, I don't think they're necessary. I, I've never read a blurb and thought, oh, I should read this book. Like, it's just, no, there's many other reasons that I want to read a book. And it's very rarely that, you know, Joe Blow said, this book is going to blow your socks off. So uh, there's that. And then there's also this extensive listing of who assisted you to essentially write the book, edit the book, um, inspire the book, what have you. And it reads like this committee is is creating this collection. And I know that comes out of the MFA mentality because there are so many students in the class and teachers. And, you know, it's wonderful to have mentors. I just think that's superb. But it's just, it's over the top now. It never used to be like that at all. And again, it's become part of the whole marketing of the book of poems as as a thing, which seems to have to come along with this type of baggage when it comes to literary magazines, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I know this was way more the case before that, but rejections were personal. Um, you would submit, of course, it, would, it was more expensive and time-consuming. You needed envelopes, you needed stamps, the self-addressed stamped envelope or SAISI. Uh, you had to go to the post box. Uh, it, it, you know, it, and if you, you know, didn't get any response, I mean, you were, you were really miffed because you spent this money and time and you wanted something, some reaction. But often you would get a personalized reaction. You wouldn't just get a form letter or being completely ignored, as is often the case these days. Uh, you would get a signed letter. Sometimes you would get um, actual critique and feedback without paying an extra three or five or 10 or $25. Uh, of course, it's much easier to submit now and you could submit to a wider variety of international periodicals through Submittable. So that's great, but the loss has been that there's not that personalized touch anymore because, again, it's overwhelmingly too much. Okay, so there's my uh, rant on the other side of things. Um, also, oh, okay, one more, one more aspect of that. I made a bunch of, like, incredibly messy notes this morning and realized I had way too much to say, speaking of too much. So I'll probably end up writing an essay on this uh, for some eventual collection. Um, but, you know, when you're a young poet there, or, you know, you've just released your first book, and uh, you know, it's probably the case with youth in general and first, you know, overall. But the sense is that, oh, you've made it. And now you will be lauded and raised on high and and this will be that, you know, and it's just not the case for like 99.9%. I hate numbers, but there you go. I like to throw out those numbers, 99.9%, but that, that don't have that happen to them. 
And, and I think that MFA programs, I mean, I don't, you know, I did spend 10 days in one, you know, in the nonfiction uh, program to get a, a bit of a sense of what's actually going on there. But I think this whole sense of like writing by committee and, you know, having somebody to always give you feedback and pats on the back and gushy blurbs and so forth, you know, writing is a lonely profession, vocation, obsession. And there's going to be a massive part of your life if you have dedicated your life to writing that you're going to spend feeling that you don't matter your work doesn't count anymore and I've seen this with a lot of older women poets in particular you know they're in their 70s say and they're feeling that well you know maybe they felt read or seen or heard in the 70s and now or the 80s and now they have been dismissed, replaced. Uh, they don't have value. Um, you know, who's reading them? Who's listening to them? Who's seeing them? There's all that ageism in uh, Canadian poetry, like everywhere else. Uh, so it's less likely, and I know there's many exceptions, but it's less likely for publishers to take a quote-unquote risk on older poets who may or may not uh, have the energy and time to promote or may not be on social media and, and so forth. Of course, that's become a huge distinction uh, between 98 and now is social media and how much more authors are supposed to do to promote themselves and get their face out into the world. Again, the superficial, the cover, right? How, how pretty is your cover uh, rather than um, substance or depth? Uh, and, you know, that whole notion of the vocation as something lifelong. And that doesn't mean every book's going to be celebrated. It doesn't mean, you know, you're going to be on everybody's lips all the time. That would be crazy. But just the the general sense that a, a poet's whole life means something and not just themselves as product and their first book as, you know, the epiphany of the gods. And then after their second or third or fourth book, ah, who cares? Like, there they go again, you know? making more stuff, right? They're not relevant anymore, you know? They've, they're not on the shelf or in the box and so forth. So I've definitely noticed that becoming more of a, a paramount notion. Of course, there's much more diversity in poetry, which is great, um, you know, in terms of race, gender, um, you know, disability, all these things that, you know, those people, those writers definitely have felt dismissed and have been invisibilized and, uh, you know, nearly destroyed or, you know, utterly ruined in the past. So please, more diversity of all kinds, but don't let that be the paramount, uh, the identifier, because the art is first and your identity is funneled and channeled through your art. But I've really seen that change where the art isn't as important. What's important is what box you fit in. So I wonder if over time that will be able to uh, meld those two aspects in a much more streamlined and honest and, and you know, valuable way. So what's, what's the same about then and now? Hmm. Well, essentially... I read like a fiend, the same now that I did then, maybe even more so. I literally divide my day by genres of different texts, if at all possible, poetry in the morning, poetics, and then, you know, I read biography and memoirs, and then later on I'll read 
you know, books of science or theory or history, and I'll read novels. And then if I get the chance before bed, I'll read a, you know, YA novel or, or a children's book, because that's one of my passions. So that's still consistent. I buy as many books as I can. Um, I don't borrow books from the library, even though I adore the library system, because I love having my own book collection. And I love seeing my obsessions on the shelf before me. So as much as possible, I will buy a book or, you know, pick up a book from my book box in front of my house. Uh, in terms of writing, uh, I, I'm pleased to say, proud some days, to uh, still be writing as much as I was back then, and maybe even more so. Uh, I'm very particular about what I publish. I do a lot of editing prior. I cut whole manuscripts out and and chop them up into little pieces and throw them in the fire. I'm pretty ruthless that way. Uh, but I do write a lot. Uh, poems are at the core always. But I write a lot of reviews, which I think is super important for every poet to do. And if every poet wrote reviews, then we wouldn't have this stigma against poets writing reviews and this notion that somehow they're diminishing themselves to a hackster or uh, they're going to make enemies. Yikes. Uh, and, and you know, they're going to be diminished or dis dismissed by their peers because, you know, they've been meanies. Uh, when, you know, the more criticism we have in a deep sense, the more articulate we can be about what works and what doesn't and why, the more we hold our, our art in high esteem, the more we value it. So yes, I and I write I write essays, I write short short fiction, and I'm working on a YA novel right now, which also has poetry at the core. So, what did I say at the end of these scrawled notes? I said, "What persists? The love. It's my life. There's nothing else I want." Happy New Year, outlaws. You've been listening to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws. Stay fierce, word musicians.